Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Welcome back to another installment of Across the Street. Today, I am honored to speak with a very special guest, Dr. Mitch Krukoff. Uh, hopefully, some of y'all have already had the pleasure of meeting him, but for those of you who don't, I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of who he is. He is one of the interventional cardiologists at the Durham VA. He has been at Duke since 1988, and he is currently a tenured professor of medicine and cardiology, as well as director of cardiovascular devices unit at the DCRI. He's been at the Durham VA since the 90s. He's actually the one who opened the cardiac cath suite at that time and served as the cath lab director for the next 11 years and brought multiple novel technologies into the VA for our veteran patients. He's also a founding board member of the Academic Research Consortium Group and co-directs three private partnerships that focus on regulatory landscape with regard to cardiac safety. He is currently in his 25th year as executive editor of the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Kukoff, for being with us. Thank you, Laura. Great to be here. Today, we are going to talk about the decision tree that would lead someone to involving someone like Dr. Kukoff in the interventional cath lab. Let's start off with the basic stuff. What are some of the indications for a left heart cath and PCI? Well, I think you have to start with the one thing that we do in a cath lab that is done nowhere else, which is defining coronary anatomy. It's frequently below one millimeter in a moving target as the heart is beating. I think coronary anatomy questions are obviously raised by patients who describe potentially suspicious or even disabling cardiovascular symptoms. So chest pains come in all shapes and sizes. Heartburn can be acid in the stomach. Heartburn can be angina. That's just how we're built. But other things that in the cardiovascular system abruptly appear, new heart failure, left ventricular dysfunction, new arrhythmias, even otherwise angina-free individuals may be disabling. And at least if the suspicion arises that it may be the fuel supply, the coronary flow that's contributing or triggering these events, then we're in the ballpark. Other abnormal functional studies, obviously there's a whole world of highly progressive over my four decades, from simple stress tests to nuclear scans, stress MRI, stress echo, CT angio, et cetera. But if those tests are abnormal, then frequently you may have an indication to go to a higher definition of what exactly is going on with the coronary anatomy. Accelerated symptoms, trajectories of patients who are having chest pain once a month, we're now having it once a day, or very abnormal functional studies that may be done for routine executive stress tests where there are huge ST changes or blood pressure rollover. Again, it may be that direct to the cath lab is reasonable. And finally, acute coronary syndromes, I think, are the areas where not just going to the cath lab, but the timing of getting there. Thank you for clarifying that. Some of the things that you described to Dr. Krupoff sound sort of more indolent, and some sound like something that we might see emergently in the hospital with those crescendo symptoms in particular. So how do you decide when a PCI is elective versus urgent or emergent? So some settings, that's easy. A, a STEMI, for instance, ST elevation on the ECG accompanied by 
chest pain, I think we've learned, is clearly majorly urgent. Patients who also have other kinds of ECG changes, but with uncontrollable symptoms, or hemodynamic embarrassment, shock, pulmonary edema. When you really have something like that brewing, getting to a cath lab to understand and try and control the ischemic component, it may not be with a PCI, it may be with circulatory assistance from a balloon pump or an impella, but whatever, getting to a cath lab to understand what's going on really can be quite urgent. I think the late in the day on Friday, patient who has troponin elevations is a little more in a gray zone. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't, on either side of the street, do elective cases over the weekend. So you're really looking at, can we leave this patient alone for three days? Or should we go to the cath lab, if not emergently, at least a little more urgently? And the rate of rise of troponins or recurrent symptoms, even after they're on good medications or IV nitro, these are, are some of the things that get down to ultimately what's always the balance of what are the benefits of accelerating care versus what potential harm or, or other things might benefit from waiting. What are some of the relative contraindications to getting a PCI? What pieces of a patient's history might make you think twice about moving to the cath lab? There are some that, again, are a little more clear. So active hemorrhage. If someone's GI bleeding, then going to a cath lab where we're going to give them anticoagulants or with a PCI and a stent, dual antiplatelet therapy is really not the right choice. Similarly, with very acute infections, we're in a COVID era right now, although active COVID in a STEMI, we probably would still take to the lab. And almost any other setting, though, we'd probably defer going to the cath lab. So sepsis, severe infections that could make the risk of the procedure greater and the management of the patient more complex. In that same kind of ballpark, very severe metabolic or electrolyte disarray, so advanced diabetic ketoacidosis with DKA to not just think about what's an acute disarray, but what tripped it. And in some diabetic patients, it may be a myocardial infarction that actually triggers diabetic ketoacidosis, so you gotta be careful. But frankly, if it's not a STEMI, then waiting for time to correct the hyperglycemia, the acidosis, the uh, electrolyte disarray may make for a much safer course for the patient by taking care of that first and then going to a cath lab later. Similarly, acute kidney injury, and even in the course of resolving, if someone comes in, took a lot of non-steroidals or whatever with a creatinine of five, it goes down to four or three or two, it may really be worth waiting until they get back to their baseline before you introduce contrast media to potentially really worsen acute kidney injury. So those are some of the spectra. The other thing that uh, I think in, in our era and probably more widely focused on today than 40 years ago when I was in training is what's the patient's preference? You know, do they want some time to think? Do they want this procedure? I can tell you as an operator in a cath lab, one of the things you learn early in your career is you never want to twist a human being's arm to have an invasive procedure. Bad things will happen. That's such an important point and kind of leads into my next question too, which is how do you take into consideration the patient's either willingness or ability to comply with your safety recommendations after a stent? not just at the VA, but in the general population as well. We deal with things like substance abuse, non-adherence to medications. 
that would impact the long-term safety of stents. So how do you approach that? Well, this is a really complex and critical area, I think, for a lot of veterans have been in harm's way, been through very difficult times and resocialization and kind of getting back to health-related lifestyles has a lot of challenges. Again, I think we've grown in both depth and breadth of our understanding and the focus on addressing that, understanding it, and treating it for veterans. That being said, there are some basic ABCs that still apply. What are the benefits? What are the risks? If you don't put a stent in or if you do, if you have bypass surgery versus a stent, are these how we configure that in patients who have psychosocial issues, who have substance use issues, maybe homeless, may have noncompliance likelihoods that are greater? And to what degree can we provide services or find ways to make this safer? The one thing I will mention is that the current generation of drug-loading stents is not only far safer than the first generation if dual antiplatelet therapy is cut short, as short as 30 days, but they're actually safer than the bare metal stents that we used to use, so that's in the good news. But again, Laura, I I think one of the keys in this type of complex situation and use of invasive therapy and technology is that the patient should be front and center. Patients who are struggling with these aspects of life actually still are a broad spectrum of human beings. Some of them are very interested in getting better. They're just struggling. Others are are just not interested and, frankly, are not interested in having a procedure, and they'll tell you that up front. So I think the patient's preference weighs in greatly in any sort of complex discussion. I love your patient-centered approach to care, and that's something that I think everyone should make note of. It gives me an opportunity to brag about the VA a little bit in particular. There was an article in Jack recently that suggested that veterans who get PCI within the Veterans Health Administration actually have better outcomes than those who get care in the community. Dr. Krukov, have you seen that, and why do you think that's the case? So I'm going to be frank, Laura. It's better with a small B, not with a capital B. Sure. There are plenty of community resources that deliver fine care. And I think that it's a compliment to the VA system that this implication would be that we can even give equivalent care to the best in the community. One of the reasons that I enjoy my work here as much as I do is unfortunately that these patients by and large are much more complicated. Our likelihood of having double-digit comorbidity lists is the norm, not the exception. Our likelihood of having multivessel disease, calcific disease, diffuse disease in the coronary anatomic configurations that we address with PCI is more the norm than the exception. Honestly, I wouldn't go too overboard about what better implies, but I think it's absolutely a compliment. I can say that the Durham VA was one of the first hospitals, not just VAs, but one of the first hospitals in the United States of America to achieve more than 90% radial access. Our continued use of newer technologies, participation in clinical research, I think all of the things that I'm very happy to say we also try to do in, in other settings like universities and such, I think just being in even the small be better category is a huge testimonial to what the VA system can bring to our patients. I I totally agree with that. And you bring up the excellent point that the average veteran is older and has more comorbidities than the average non-veteran. 
Along with that, that means that several of our patients are often not represented in the large PCI trials. So what is your approach to those patients, the particularly elderly ones, the ones with poor renal function, or other ones that otherwise are left out of trials looking at PCI interventions? Well, in an era of evidence-based medicine, I, I think probably one of the most repeated phrases that I use even in our clinics. If you think you can just find an algorithm or even best practice standard of care that is based on evidence that includes this kind of patient, you better look again at the evidence. So many uh, coronary intervention studies, the pharmaceutical trials that have looked at dual antiplatelet therapy, optimal antithrombotic therapy, et cetera, routinely have excluded patients who have high bleeding risk or many of the comorbidities you mentioned, liver disease, renal disease, et cetera. And literally every coronary stent study up until 2015 similarly excluded the vast majority of these much more complex patients. So it's nice to have best practice. Don't get me wrong. I'm a great believer in best practice guidelines and evidence-based practice. But in, in this patient population, in our patient population, you still have to be a doctor. And you better include knowledge of the gap between the evidence on which a lot of these recommendations are based and the individual human being whose multiple comorbidity benefits and risks you're weighing as you take them down a therapeutic path. One thing that I'm very proud of is last May, the Academic Research Consortium published both in the European Heart Journal and in circulation, high bleeding risk characteristics after Philippe Urban and a group in Europe did the Leaders Free study published in the New England Journal as a randomized trial in high bleeding risk patients between an active drug eluting stent and the state of the art at that time, which was a bare metal stent, and showed that not only were the drug eluting stent with 30 days of dual antiplatelet therapy safer, but they were also more effective as expected. So that rocked the world. We now have two stents in the United States with that label, and we'll shortly have a third one. So high bleeding risk patients who have routinely been excluded from ACS studies, from PCI studies, now are front and center, well-defined regulatory community device labeling going forward. So a lot of these should be pretty recognizable characteristics to health staff who do any kind of rounds or clinic in our environment. Yes, undoubtedly. And congratulations on the amazing accomplishments that you've already had. I have one more question for you, Dr. Krukoff. Because your approach to patients is so holistic and so invested in who they are and their specific needs, and also since you have interest in complementary and alternative medicine, have you ever recommended CAM in addition to these therapies to your ACS and um, coronary artery disease patients? And, and if so, what do you recommend? You may or may not be aware, Laura, that the pilot study for a program we called the Monitoring and Actualization of Noetic Training, or the MANTRA study, was conducted at the Durham VA with patients with acute coronary syndromes who were taken to the cath lab, who were prospectively randomized to standard care, healing touch, stress relaxation mantra, and the results of that pilot, which were published in the American Journal of Cardiology in 2001, led to the multicenter 
five times larger study using a very similar but factorial randomization, including off-site double-blind intercessory prayer versus standard care, along with open-label bedside music imagery and touch versus standard care in a factorial two-by-two design that was published in The Lancet in 2005. And the beginning of that, that whole pilot was accomplished here. As we shared the study design for the pilot with the CCU nurses, where 100% of these ACS patients were being conducted, the questions we received included, hey, I practice healing touch, or I pray for my patients all the time. So if they're randomized in standard care, does that mean I shouldn't do that? So uh, to me, the holistic question is if you or your mom or dad were the patient, what would you want to be included? Not instead of the high-tech approach, but in addition to the high-tech approach. And the degree to which I am absolutely convinced after 40 years of practicing in a cath lab that that bond the development of trust in a relationship between a patient and their healthcare staff, the ability to relax, the ability to breathe more comfortably with a relaxed abdominal breath, that those things go along with all the stress physiology that all of us know so well, but there are intrinsic healing capacities in human beings that reaches a level where physiologic changes and benefits occur. Let me take one more opportunity to thank Dr. Krukov so much for his time today. And we can tell from the digging in the background that he's in the middle of multiple things simultaneously. I think he gave us some time from his clinic day this afternoon to speak. So thank you so much, Dr. Krukov, for your time. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Likewise, Laura. And I'm, I'm so glad you're doing this. And in a COVID world, this gives us just another avenue for communication. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> And as always, the views and opinions expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration.